So um, we see so many different pictures and foreshadows and types throughout the Old Testament that we've been seeing, right? And most recently, we, we saw on Easter morning, Easter on Mount Moriah, the Lord told Abraham to take his son, his one and only son, whom he loved, to go up on top of the mountain that he would show him and to sacrifice his only son. And we saw the ram caught in the thickets to be the substitute for Isaac's life. The ram would die in his place. And of course we see Jesus there on Easter morning. And we celebrate the wonderful substitutionary atonement and all these foreshadows and types of the gospel to come in the Old Testament. Uh, Another theme that we see throughout the Old Testament is life and death. Life and death. Life and death. And in chapter 23, we saw death. Right? Who died? Sarah. Abraham's wife, married over a hundred years, and and had now uh, gone to be with the Lord, and had been buried in a in a in a cave at Machpelah in Hebron, um, and Abraham grieved, but he also bought a plot of land to make sure that he could bury his wife there, and they would be able to move forward with the promises that God had made that this would be their land, and his offspring would inherit. This land, it would be theirs, um, and so they long for that day, even in the day in the time of, of grieving and mourning. Um, now that death is met with life in chapter twenty-four. Uh, Abraham's story is coming to a close, and Isaac and Rebecca's story is beginning. Uh, Sarah passed away; she was buried. Abraham really needed to make sure he's got. Some land to leave his grandkids to. And chapter 24 is all about how his grandkids are going to get that land, right? Uh, Life is bursting forth from the funeral of last week, right? Um, This is what chapter 24 is all about. Remember, Isaac was pushing 40 years old. He had no wife. Um, And Abraham logs on to Match.com, you know, see if he can make something happen. E-harmony, maybe? Um, he's got to find a wife for his son. And the most challenging part of this chapter, I think, is the, the 67 verses that I'm, I've really struggled with. Um, but I want to help you see the whole thing, the whole, whole picture here, so we don't miss the forest for the trees. Abraham commissions his servant to find a wife of his own kind for Isaac, and the Lord sovereignly selects Rebekah. For this marriage, through the servant's obedience, which would secure a future for Israel. And we learn from chapter 24 how to joyfully submit to God's commissions because we know He is sovereign, He is full of Hesed love, and He will grant us success as we express our faith and confidence in His promises. So I've got four parts for us this morning. Commission, confidence, completion, and conclusion. Starting with commission. Verses 1 through 9, which we read, the text begins setting the scene with two statements. Verse 1, Abraham is an old man. Right? And the second part of verse 1, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And this sets the scene for us. Abraham is an old dude now, right? 
not a young buck anymore. He can't go back to Mesopotamia and find a wife with his, uh, you know, limping uh, posture. But God had blessed him from the beginning. And the Lord will continue to bless him in his old age. The Lord would provide. Abraham believed that. And if I could give you my first application before I've even got to a sprinting start here, it'd be this. God continues to provide for his children regardless of how old you are. In fact, it's the old Christians who ought to be finding that to be the most true. We see too many elderly Christians go, grow bitter and pessimistic with age, right? They see more of the wickedness of the world. But we should also see more of the faithfulness of God. Beloved, as you grow older, you ought to trust more and more in the Lord to provide for you. As a young man myself and other young men and women in this congregation, we need to see the older among us, the older men and the older women, live by faith. That's what we need to see from you. I need to see old men who are leaning on the everlasting arms, who are optimistic about life because they've seen the mighty hand of God time and time and time again, decades longer than I have. We need elders in the church who think this way. We need deacons in the church who think this way. We need leaders who think this way. Abraham didn't throw in the towel because he was an old man. He trusted the promises of God in his old age. So he put a plan together. He says, come, my servant. And uh, we have this servant who makes up the meat of the whole chapter. He's never named. Um, I'm going to call him Eleazar because it's easier. And because back in chapter 15, Abraham mentioned a servant who is over all his household, uh, who he planned to leave all his possessions to right before he had a son, Ishmael or Isaac. Um, so let's say this might be Eleazar. I don't know if it is or not, but I'm going to call him Eleazar because it's easier instead of saying that unknown servant guy, right? So let's call him Eleazar. Um, Abraham commissions him to go to his homeland and don't come back without a wife. Abraham did not want his son to marry a Hittite woman, just as the land had been bought so that it would be fully his possession and there'd be no question about who it belonged to, to secure the future for Israel. He needed to secure a wife that was going to go along with God's agenda. And that was not going to be found among the Hittites. And this also foreshadows Esau's decision, who would be Isaac's son. He decided to marry a Hittite woman, and she made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. But Eleazar is concerned here, okay, I'll go to Mesopotamia, but what if I go and she doesn't want to come back with me? Should I take Isaac, you know, and take him over to Mesopotamia and let him start a life there? Abraham says, absolutely not. God made a promise, and we're not going back to Mesopotamia. We're going to own this Canaan land, even though I'm about to die. The, the land is already ours. And that's why they make this oath together. Um, made, uh, the oath was made by the Lord, the God of heaven and the earth. And here's where we first learn in the passage that God is deliberately working behind the scenes the entire time. Right? God is working the whole time. And it's under God's allegiance that um, Eleazar would accept this commission and go to Mesopotamia. And he does accept that commission by placing his hand under uh, Abraham's thigh or vice versa. Um, I'm glad we don't do that anymore, right? But uh, 
a handshake of all handshakes, essentially. Um, but the question is this. Will Eleazar trust the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth on his journey? We find out in the next few verses that he does. In verse 10, we read, The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from the master. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed by your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with water on her shoulder. So the servant packs up a hefty bag. This is about a thousand mile journey back to Mesopotamia. Takes ten camels. Obviously, there are other men on those camels. There's a, a, a good fleet with him and lots of precious gifts. But most importantly, he packs lots of faith. He makes it to the city of Nahor, Abraham's brother, right? Um, not uncommon to see a city named after the dude who's like the guy, right? He's kind of a big deal in the city of Nahor. His name's Nahor. Um, he left early in the morning so he could be there by sunset. Or I don't know when he left, but he left in time to make it towards the watering hour when all the ladies would go out to get water for the night. And after parking the camels, first thing he decides to do at this well is pray. And he makes it clear who he prays to. He prays to the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of my master, Abraham, that he might have success. And we know what we just read later in the passage, right? He, he says, before I was even able to finish praying, Rebecca shows up with water on her shoulder. But I want to point you to verse 12, a very important um, Hebrew word that, that deserves attention. It says in his prayer, show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. And of course, he asked for the right woman to come out. She's going to have the water. She's going to offer him water and offer you know, his camel's water. But he says, whoever that one is, I'll know that you have decided, Lord, to show steadfast love to my master. That word steadfast love is huge. Some translations say kindness. Others say loving kindness. Some say unfailing love. Um, You might have heard the word in Hebrew called hesed or chesed, if you're a real Hebrew. Um, And it's used almost 250 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Mostly used of God. We saw, though, that it can be used of man back when Abraham and Abimelech made a treaty together. You deal kindly, you deal hesed with me, I'll deal hesed with you. Right? Remember that, don't we? With man, hesed is used in a sense of general well-being, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. 
That's man's perspective of this Hesed type of love. But with God, there is a special connotation of love and kindness that is mingled together. It is God condescending to the needs of His creatures because He loves them. It is providence and favor that is advantageous for us, motivated by love. It's used like a billion times in the Psalms. It's used in reference to God saving His people from His enemies. It's in reference to preserving life when someone is close to death. It's used in reference to redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's used in reference to God keeping His covenants and being faithful to His promises to us. And when this word is used, there's also helpful adjectives in front of it. Numbers 14, 18. Abundant. Abundant. Chesed. Abundant in steadfast love. Numbers 14, 19. The very next verse. Exceedingly great in loving kindness. In Hesed love. Jeremiah 33, 11. Everlasting Hesed. Everlasting loving kindness. Psalm 69, 17. Good hesed. There's no evil in it. It is completely altogether good love. Isaiah 63, 7. Um, his loving kindness is historic. It, it's worthy of being retold. All the wonders that God has done over and over and over again. Recount his deeds. Tell the generation to generation to generation what God has done. Tell them of his hesed love. This is one of those Bible words you need to know. Eleazar knew it, and it helped him pray better, and it helped him obey. Where do you think Eleazar learned the word hesed? He learned it from his master, Abraham, who knew the hesed love of God firsthand. Eleazar had been watching Abraham the whole time as he managed his household, right? This passage, listen, isn't a justification for us to pray for coincidences and pie-in-the-sky stuff like you know, if you do this sign, God, I'll know that you're listening to me. What this is, is uh, a passage that teaches us to pray with an expectation of God to act this way towards us. Not because we deserve to be treated this way, but because of who he is. This passage is about God. God didn't send Rebecca out to get water that night because Eleazar deserved it. God sent Rebekah out the, at the perfect opportune time because he's God, because he's Hesed, because he acts in favor and love and kindness towards his children when he doesn't have to. And even with all the confidence in the world, Eleazar gazed at her in silence when she came out and began to water the animals, not sure if this was the Lord's doing. And I think he gazed at her in silence because he expected God to be kind and favorable, but he knew he did not deserve God to be kind and favorable. Would it really be this simple? <laughs> Would it be the first girl who just comes out? Is God really this kind to me after this long journey? She gives him water. She gives him camels, or she gives the, 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 the camels water. And Eleazar is thinking she's got to be the one, right? So he grabs the nose ring. He's like, here you go. This will make you look pretty and put on some bracelets. Um, a gift of generosity, but also kind of like separating her, like a betrothal type of gift. Um, and we find out that she's the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah and Nahor, Abraham's brother. 
And upon hearing this news, along with her warm reception, he bows his head and he worships the Lord. And he praises God, saying, The God of my master Abraham has not forsaken what? His Hesed love and faithfulness. God did this. Not Eleazar, not Rebecca, not Abraham. This was the Hesed love of God, and therefore God gets the glory. Right? God did this. The Hesed love of God led Eleazar to pray rightly and then to worship rightly. But his worship was not without obedience. He would need to complete the task. He's got to get Rebecca back home. Verse 28, we read about their encounter. What happens next? The young woman ran and told uh, her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. We'll hear more from Laban later. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came into the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet, the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. Speak on. So Laban, Rebecca's brother, comes to the spring to see what's going on. He sees the nose ring. He sees the bracelet. He's like, okay, what's going on here, right? And uh, they, they sort of explain what happened. Rebecca says, here's this man. He's from uh, the, the Canaan land. And he says he's from Abraham's household. Uh, so Laban's like, all right, awesome. Come to the house. We'll make a meal. You can wash your feet. You know, give your camels a place to stay. Let's, let's have a meal. But Eleazar refuses to eat. The ultimate offense to the Southern Baptist, right? I'm not going to eat your food. Why not? He explains why. He says, I can't eat. I can't eat. I'm not hungry until I complete my mission given me from my master. There's an angel sent before me. I know I'm going to have success. I have to do this, right? He explains what happened to Abraham in all those years and how his son now needs a wife. He spells out the instructions verbatim from Abraham. He tells him how he couldn't even finish praying before, Abraham, or before Rebekah showed up at the well. So before taking a single bite of his food, he, he asks the question of the hour, what's it going to be? He says in verse 49, are you going to show hesed love to my master? And he, again, that play on the word hesed. God has shown loving kindness here. Are you going to show loving kindness to my master? Eleazar's obedience is pretty amazing in this passage. Most of us at least have the politeness to eat the meal first, you know, and then wait until maybe after dessert and coffee to bring up the tense conversation. But he says, I'm not going to have a bite until we get this off the table. She coming with me or not? His desire to be found faithful was so deep that he would face hunger before he would lose his chance to win Rebecca. He was concerned about faithfulness. And we're reminded of Jesus' words, aren't we, on the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is what Eleazar was hungering after. And I believe that hunger for righteousness only intensified as he bowed his head in worship and praised the Lord, seeing and savoring his Hesed love. I wonder if we long for righteousness more than food. Probably the most influential verse in this whole passage is verse 50. Laban talks to dad, right? Maybe they get, get aside and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Okay. What do you say? They do that little thing and then maybe they come back and here's what they say. The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. In other words, it doesn't matter what we think. Our opinion is irrelevant. If God is doing this, who cares what we say? If this is indisputably the revealed will of God by way of intervention, who are we, regardless of whether we want it or not, to say anything or to give any charge against God? If God has said it, she must go and be Isaac's wife. Family, do you believe that God has the final say? Do you believe God's word trumps the opinion of every man? When you hear sermons, do you want to hear God's word? Or do you want to hear, you know, a hot take we talked about? If you find something difficult to swallow in God's word, you read that thing you really don't like. Do you think there must be a problem with God's word? Or do you think there must be a problem with me? Are you more interested in, in someone's opinion on YouTube? The latest tweet by that political dude that you like to follow. Are you more interested in what God has to say in his 66 books of revealed will? Or what man has to say? There is only one absolute truth. And that absolute truth comes from God and God alone. But now that we got that out of the way, let's eat, right? Hardly. Eleazar hears their response and he worships again. He bows his head before the Lord with a full plate of food, right? Got mashed potatoes on his forehead. He, he worships again. And then he brings out the rest of the jewelry and the rest of the gifts. And he gives them to Rebecca. And then they finally eat. And they stay the night. But there's one more moment of tension in verse 55. Uh, Laban and his mom, right, um, Bethuel's wife, I don't think we know her name, uh, they, they, they think Rebecca needs just a little bit more time before she goes out to that Canaan land, right? Maybe 10 days. What do you say, right? Just give us 10 days with, with Rebecca, and then she can go and be married to Isaac. But Eleazar is on a mission. I didn't come here to come back in 10 days, Right? Abraham told me not to come back <laughs> without a wife. Will God's plan be jeopardized this close to completion? Will man's desires overcome God's will? Eleazar says, do not delay the Lord. If God is doing this, we must do it now. So they go to Rebekah. They let her decide for herself and praise the Lord for Rebekah's answer. I will go. I will go. 
And here we learn that Rebecca is not just a trophy wife passed to and fro from land to land, but she is a willing agent in the good plan of the Lord. And they all decide to bless her in verse 60. They blessed, it seems like uh, both parties are, are blessing Rebecca, saying, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Sound familiar? These are the words of the Abrahamic covenant back in chapter 22. Um, this covenantal promise that was made to Abraham, which means that Rebekah isn't just coming in as a bride for Isaac, but she's coming in as a successor. She's going to inherit the covenant, right? Sarah has died. Rebekah must arise by God's election and be the new, patri- or the new matriarch of their nation. The promise has not ended with Abraham and Sarah, but lives afresh in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. And all that's left to do now is to get her down the aisle. Verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And she left her. Or he left her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So you can picture the scene, right? The herd of camels were coming into town. And by more divine providence, who's out in the field waiting? Isaac is the first person who gets to meet Rebekah. Of all of Abraham's household, he lifts up his eyes out in the field and he sees a woman. And simultaneously, Rebekah lifts up her eyes out in the field. She sees a man. She gets off the camel and she says, who is that man? And of course, we know it's Isaac, right? So she puts on her veil, suddenly realizing that she's just showed up to her own wedding. And Eleazar explains to Isaac all that has happened. And Rebekah is brought in where? To Sarah's tent. She became Isaac's wife, and Isaac loved her. And he was comforted that God brought life after the death of his mother. This is a wedding. This is a love story. But it's also a story of substitution. The Lord waited to send Rebekah to town until Isaac was pushing 40 years old, until after Sarah died, Sarah would live on figuratively through the life of Rebekah. Abraham isn't even mentioned in the rest of the passage. We've already seen Abraham's last words. He dies the next chapter. The new patriarchal couple, Isaac and Rebekah, have stepped in to the position of God's covenant keepers. The keepers of the promises that God has made, that Yahweh initiated with Abraham. God is keeping His promises through a substitute. 
And how I started my sermon. The Old Testament is full of rich stories, substitution. We're going to see more substitution. But Sarah's death in this passage is covered up, is comforted by the arrival of Rebekah. And so our sins have been covered by the arrival of Jesus Christ. Through Christ and through Christ alone and his intervention, we become heirs of the promises. He chose us, elected us from foreign lands to come and receive his blessing. To come and partake of his table. To come and be called his children. To be adopted into his kingdom. We show up out of nowhere, not because we deserve His promises, but because God chose us and sent for us by the Holy Spirit. He woke us up in our deadness. And like Rebecca, we said, I will go. I will go. I will follow this God who has died for my sins. Jesus took our place on the cross, bearing our sin and the full weight of God's wrath. And then He rose from the dead, calling all to repent and believe on Him that we might have everlasting life. Perhaps Eleazar is not knocking at your door this morning, asking you to come home. But perhaps the Holy Spirit is. If you're not in Christ this morning, delay no longer. Don't wait ten days. Repent. Believe in the gospel of Jesus. Your life depends on this. Your future in Christ is in jeopardy if you do not believe that God and God alone is the God of salvation. If you are not saved, dear friend, come. Believe in Jesus today. Don't wait another minute. Come. Come home. But for us Christians, what do we have to take away from this long passage of boy meets girl? Here's a few things. Don't grow old without also growing in faith. Don't grow old without also growing in faith. We will waste our lives if decades of birthdays come and go and our spiritual lives remain stagnant and complacent. There are a few worse things on earth than bitter old men. But one of them is bitter old Christians. Like Abraham, the closer we get to death, the more confident we ought to be in the promises of God. But to grow your faith is not something that just happens upon you. Right? You can't just expect it to just happen. You have to work at it. You have to fight temptation. You have to destroy your idols. You have to confess your sins. You have to be watchful in prayer. You have to deny yourself daily and a lot of other really hard things if you want your faith to grow. If you're not growing in faith now, it's not going to magically happen after this sermon. Don't waste your life. Grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Give Him all that you have. Secondly, The success of our commission is entirely dependent on the providence of God. The success of our commission is entirely dependent upon the providence of God. We've been given a commission similar to Eleazar's, but instead of a bride that we have to go and get, we have sheep that we're going to go and get. Jesus tells us he's already got them named. He knows where they are. He knows where they're stuck at. We go and tell them the good news about Jesus Christ heralding his death and burial and resurrection, the atonement of sins through his gospel. 
And he wins the souls. Right? He does it. Now, we can call ourselves soul winners, but at the end of the day, Jesus is the soul winner. Our success in obedience is simply that we open up our mouths. The actual regeneration of someone's soul is what God takes care of. He does the saving. We do the preaching. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given over to Christ. That means He can save and He will save. Well, but what if they don't respond in my first attempt to evangelize? Success is dependent upon God's providence alone. Well, what if they don't respond in my 50th attempt attempt to evangelize them? The success is in God's providence alone. If we really believe in the providence of God, we must never give up on a sinner. Some of y'all are ready to brush your feet, right? As soon as they do something you don't like. They don't like your message. They're not being friends with me. Yeah. God must give them up to the desires of their heart. I guess they're condemned forever. I'll move on. I'm thankful to God that the person who evangelized me didn't quit on the first try. It took about 50 tries. It took about 50 invitations. Share the gospel. God will do his part. Third, pray and obey with God's hesed love in mind. Pray and obey with God's hesed love in mind. We simply cannot pray well if we don't know who God is. If we don't know who we're talking to, how are we going to talk to him, right? If we struggle to pray, it's probably a theology problem. If you read your Bible, you learn about the depths of your sin. And you'll learn about salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And you'll learn about the all-satisfying joy of glorying in God with all of your life. And you'll learn about good sovereignty of the almighty and all-knowing God of Abraham. And you'll learn about his loving kindness towards you when you're a wretch. And then when you've seen all these things, then praying doesn't seem so hard. You'll find yourself forgetting to even ask for stuff because God is awesome. He's amazing. And you find yourself just taken away with the simple fact that you are communing with this God, the God of the Bible. And He loves you with hesed love that you could never deserve and pours out favor and kindness and goodness to you. And not only prayer becomes easier, but obedience becomes easier. If you struggle to obey the commands of God, to put your sin to death, to stay faithful to your spouse, to worship the Lord and the Lord only, again, it may be a theology problem. The bigger your view of God, the better your response will be to God. Last one. If God is building it, ain't no stopping it. If God is building it, it can't be stopped. God is saying to all of us this morning, you can't say anything to my plans. You can't say good or bad. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Our opinions are completely irrelevant and our concerns are puny. There are no obstacles to what God builds. Not old age. Nobody uses that one, right? Not a thousand mile journey to Mesopotamia on a camel. Not a concerned mother-in-law who just wants ten more days. If God is doing it, 
it won't be stopped. You know, even the unbeliever knows this in his heart as they strive with the Holy Spirit sometimes for years. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel, Pharisee, calms down an outraged crowd, right, with some borrowed truth. What is the truth that he borrows? He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't believe in the Messiah. But yet he speaks to this bloodthirsty crowd. What does he say? If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Dear friends, if the unbeliever can grasp this simple concept, how much more should the church? How much more should the church? I fear many of us will be found opposing God on the last day simply because we doubted His methods and His divine purposes. When will we learn that God does whatever He pleases? He doesn't need a lot of money. He doesn't need a Billy Graham preacher. He doesn't need an ad in the paper. He needs nothing. He can take 12 dudes and literally turn the world upside down. And since those days, he's been doing billions of things deliberately behind the scenes to intervene and show providence. But one thing we know that he is doing right now and has been for some 2,000 years is building his church. And if God builds it, it doesn't fail. Right? So, does that mean our labor is in vain? If we're acting on a promise of God? Absolutely not. God builds His church. It won't fail. Regardless of how little we think of His church today. Regardless of the false teachers that abound. Regardless of what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. Regardless of the godlessness in our nation. Is God's plan going to fail? Absolutely not. So it's time we stop doubting the Lord and giving Him made-up obstacles that He has to work around in order to revive and replant His church and build His kingdom here and start saying, Yes, Lord, build Your house and put our hands to the plow and replant this church for His glory. Let's get after it. Our labor is not in vain. Let's get after it. And let's get after it knowing his hesed love and his faithfulness, expecting him to pour these things out, even though we don't deserve it. In death, God gives life. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.